ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with Vetify or any of its affiliates. Vetify's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or indication by Vetify of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Looking to take advantage of what Warren Buffett calls the American tailwind of prosperity? The Gabelli Financial Services Opportunity ETF is actively managed by McCray Sykes to invest in companies leveraged to long-term secular trends. This thematic approach provides the tax efficiency and real-time trading benefits of ETFs. Visit gabelli.com forward slash funds forward slash ETFs forward slash GABF to learn more. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me in studio, live and in person, will be James Seifert, ETF Research Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. And obviously, you should already know what the topic will be. Yes, we are going to cover crypto ETFs. We'll talk spot Bitcoin ETFs, spot Ether ETFs, futures-based crypto ETFs. We're going to cover it all, and I would say they're Probably aren't five people walking this planet who know more about crypto ETFs than uh, James does. He is into this world deep. And so I can't uh, wait for this. The uh, timing is perfect because yesterday the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals issued their mandate in Grayscale's court victory, which, of course, the SEC did not appeal that. And so uh, we'll talk about that situation and everything going else, uh, everything else going on with uh, spot Bitcoin ETFs and other crypto related ETFs as well. It should be a fantastic conversation. Now, to uh, start this week, I have on the line with me Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. And I would say there aren't many people walking the uh, planet who know more about ETFs, period, than uh, Todd does. And we have a very nice grab bag of topics to get into. So let's chat with Todd now. Now we're joined by the experts at Vetify, a new data analytics and thought leadership company that is transforming financial services from an industry to a community, one relationship at a time. $800 billion, I think we have to say that again, $800 billion and counting for an industry that is is still growing in size is impressive. Todd, I actually thought about having you hang around and talk crypto ETFs with uh, James and I, but then I thought, you know what? That would probably be torture for you, and I didn't want to put you through that. I think you you got the best in the business to talk crypto uh, ETFs with you, I guess the two of you. Uh, I I'm sorry I'm not there in person. I imagine there'll be some ribs or something after to celebrate. Before we uh, get into the topics that you and I have, any quick uh, comments or or thoughts on crypto ETFs? Anything at all you'd like to offer up to the ETF Prime audience? Well, I imagine that James is listening, so I'm excited that he and Eric Valchunas agree with what I think is going to happen. They, They are now, their goalposts are in January or February of 2024, when an ET, when a Bitcoin ETF, uh, spot Bitcoin ETF will be launched. As you, you and the audience probably knows, I have a bet with his colleague, Eric Bautunas, uh, that it won't happen in 2023. And I think we're likely to see by exchange when we're all together in February 2024 that we could see multiple spot products trading. And I'll be more than happy to celebrate that they were right that a product was faster than I expected, but also more than happy to celebrate that I was right and that it wasn't in 2023. So get James on record to confirm when he actually thinks 
a product is going to come to market. I 100% will. And, uh, you know, things are just moving so fast in this space. It seems like every day there's a new headline or, or something uh, is updated on a filing or, or what have you. Now, I think, as you know, I'm on record as saying that I think the uh, first launch will be in January. And I, I actually tweeted something out last night that may, maybe James and I can talk about, which is I just don't know why the SEC would accelerate their decision-making when they don't have to make a final decision on the uh, ARC 21 share spot Bitcoin ETF until January 10th. But again, things are moving very quickly. So it's going to be interesting. I think your bet is going to uh, come down to the wire. So, so we'll see. Um, okay, Todd. So I, I have a, uh, a grab bag of ETF topics, as I mentioned at the top. And I, I thought I'd start you know, we had another ETF milestone recently, and it wasn't a big one, but I, I do think worth mentioning, which was that the Vanguard S&P 500 ETF, ticker VU, VOO, that turned 13 years old. And again, that's not a huge deal in and of itself. But what I think is noteworthy is that in those 13 years, VU has grown to become the third largest ETF, third largest, some $325 billion in assets. And you may recall that one of my uh, 2023 ETF predictions, which, as an aside, uh, those are not looking so good. It's been a, a really tough year for me on that front. Though I will say, for people who have followed these for a while, my overall track record is still pretty good. It's like uh, when Pete Rose or whoever has a batting slump for a month or two, but they're still hitting you know, 350 or 400. That's me. Uh, but in all seriousness, you may recall that one of my predictions was that VU or uh, IVV, the iShares S&P 500 ETF, or even both, would overtake SPY, the Spider S&P 500 ETF and assets. That's clearly not going to happen this year. Uh, but I guess my question is, do you think we could see that by next year or in 2025? And give us a few thoughts on the uh, success of VU itself over these past 13 years. Yeah, so I was at the New York Stock Exchange bell ringing when VU was celebrating its 13th birthday, 13 is a lucky number for some people and unlucky for others. Your fellow Kansas City Chiefs fan, Taylor Swift, obviously has made it more cool. Uh, but in the Jewish tradition, that's a time for celebration. My son is also 13 years old and had his bar mitzvah. So I was just excited about turning 13 for VU. Not only is it the third large GTF, but it's been gaining market share on IVV and SPY in the last year and on the last few years. And it's likely to pass by before we know it. I don't want to put a timetable uh, on when it will be. It's probably in 25 or 26. It's certainly, I don't think it's going to be in 2024. But what's exciting also is just this is trading the way that you would think an S&P 500-based ETF would trade over more than 4 million shares on average in the last 50 days. It's extremely appealing for those advisors or smaller institutions that are putting money to work in medium and, and large sizes to be able to get trades done. So this is not just a cheap, broad market-based ETF. It's a highly liquid one, too, and that's just worthy of celebrating. And, boy, we pivoted from, from crypto to perhaps one of the more boring, largest uh, core ETFs around. That's a good point on VU's liquidity because one of the things that people always point to in terms of SPY's success is that that massive liquidity moat that it has. But to your point, VU trades, obviously, with extremely tight spreads. So does IVV. And you, you would think as those continue to grow, those spreads, which are already minuscule, will only get um, smaller. For those keeping track at home, by the way, and th these totals are as of yesterday, SPY currently has $395 billion in assets, IVV $347 billion. And then VU, $325 billion, as I mentioned. There's also, of course, SPLG, which is a mini spy, has a, a cheaper expense ratio. I believe, what, three basis points versus nine for spy. That has about $20 billion in assets. And, of course, expense ratios have played a big role here in VU and, and IVV and even SPLG garnering assets. Um, sort of related, I... One of my predictions that I'm actually thinking about for 2024 is Vanguard surpassing iShares in total ETF assets. And so if you look right now, I'm, I'm throwing out a lot of stats today, but Vanguard is about $200 billion 
behind iShares, roughly 2.3 trillion in ETF assets for iShares to 2.1 trillion for Vanguard. Do you think that's possible that even if VU doesn't pass SPY to take the individual ETF crown, uh, you know, in the next year or so, maybe they can still take the overall crown by passing iShares? So I think we're actually more likely to see SPY get passed probably around the same time, maybe not that much ahead of of VU passing, I'm sorry, Vanguard passing BlackRock. But just BlackRock is still pulling in a lot of money mm-hmm. uh, through their products. TLT, which I, I don't know that we're going to spend time talking about, is an $18 billion uh, net inflow gatherer, and we're seeing Escov and Qual. So it is not just IVV uh, and, and VU that the two firms are competing with. But what I am encouraged to see is that Vanguard's fixed income ETF uh, continues to grow, continues to pull in money, because BND has pulled in $14 billion this year. BNDX, which is the international uh, core fixed income product that they have, $6 billion. Their Muni ETF, VTEB, V-T-E-B, another $4 billion. I know I'm throwing out a lot of tickers the way that you're throwing out a lot of stats. But what's also exciting to see is that Vanguard plans to expand their fixed income lineup to include active ETFs. They've got a couple slated for December. Uh, they're a core bond and a core plus bond ETF. Those are going to be really cheap, you know, 10 and 20 basis points in fees that match the mutual fund counterparts. I think Vanguard is just raising the bar in terms of education and visibility and fixed income. And a shameless plug, they will be at the Vetify Income Strategy Symposium taking place on Friday, October 27th, talking about active fixed income strategies. That's Vanguard it is. So folks can register at ETFtrends.com. You know, it's interesting because I think I'll speak for myself, just having been in this industry as long as I have. You almost take Vanguard's ETF success for granted a little bit, right? They just keep raking in. Um, assets year after year. You mentioned some of the uh, fixed income ETFs they have with B&D. Now, you know, $95 billion largest bond ETF out there, some of their new launches. You, you just sort of take that success for granted. But but you look, and again, year after year, they just continue to, to rake in assets. I had a, uh, a stat that I pulled. This was from CityWire a few weeks ago. So in March of 2017, Vanguard's assets were 63% of iShares. Three years later, in March of 2020, they had only moved up to 68%. But now, a little over three years after that, they're at 90% plus of, uh, of iShares' assets. So it just shows you how fast they're, uh, they're coming. Um, Todd, you mentioned Vanguard's active bond ETFs. And I actually wanted to ask you about a recent Vetify survey that ties in here, where you uh, polled advisors on whether they prefer an active, passive, or mixed approach to core bond allocation. And let me just give listeners the results, and then I uh, I, I want to get your reaction. So 59% of respondents said a mixed approach, 59%. 28% said active, and then only 13% said passive. Did that surprise you at all, that uh, passive number? And I know active managers have typically fared better on the fixed income side in in terms of performance, right, compared to equities. And so maybe it's just that simple. But I'm curious what you made of these results because the largest bond ETFs are all passive. Uh, You know, you have to go down the the list of bond ETFs quite a ways to find JPST, the the first active ETFs there. And then I, I looked at the data over the weekend I show out of the top 50 bond ETFs, only three are active. And so what did you make of those survey results? So let me just take a slight step back and just say we did this survey during a webcast with a partner that's in the mutual fund space. And and so an active mutual fund, we asked the question, so I still use the data because I found it actually more exciting given that there isn't, there's more of a presence in the active mutual fund space for fixed income than there is currently an active fixed thing. I'm sorry, an active ETF presence. But so what jumped out at me more was that 59% mm-hmm. uh, that people are, it's not active or passive. It's active and passive 
being blended together within portfolios. And so what's exciting is, to me, in the ETF space, as you noted, we're seeing a growing supply of products. We're seeing growing demand off of a very small base. We have lots of firms that have had a legacy presence in the mutual fund space bring some of their better ideas or versions of the better ideas into the ETF marketplace. Capital Group uh, has expanded their active ETF lineup. Uh, most recently, they added a core bond fund, CGCB. We're actually going to have the, one of the managers of that fund at our income symposium uh, taking place later on this week. But we've got BlackRock and DoubleLine. JP Morgan added a new bond ETF. Uh, I think it's uh, JBND uh, a week or so ago. PIMCO, all these firms are bringing their best ideas. So I think it's going to give investors and advisors the opportunity to use active and passive together within the same ETF, uh, in the ETF universe, as opposed to just being mutual funds uh, or ETFs. No, I think that's well said. And uh, I'm full of stats this morning. I pulled another stat, which I believe was from a piece that you wrote, uh, that you mentioned the the base for, for bond ETFs. Bond ETFs represent approximately 20% of industry assets, but they've gathered more than 40% of new inflows in the first nine months of uh, this year. And of course, a lot of that's driven by the uh, market environment, but I think we would both agree the adoption of fixed income ETFs is uh, is clearly accelerating. Uh, a, a few other topics here, Todd. You mentioned legacy brands entering the ETF space, and, and this is also on the note of active bond ETFs as well. Last week, as I know you're aware, Morgan Stanley launched five new ETFs, and three of those were active bond ETFs. All, all of these ETFs, by the way, lean into the brands and uh, investment capabilities of Eaton Vance and Parametric. And uh, I, I don't know why I'm doing this to myself, but I'm, again, going to bring <laughs> up my lackluster 20. You already knew where I was headed. My lackluster 2023 ETF predictions, because one of those was that Morgan Stanley would be the ETF issuer of the year. And I really didn't define that. I, I should have. I, I just thought it'd be pretty clear at the end of the year, if somebody like you and, and our other counterparts in the ETF space look back, we would all agree that Morgan Stanley was the issuer of the year. But that prediction doesn't look so good either. You add it to my, my list here. And so I'm just curious, how, how would you assess Morgan Stanley's first year of ETFs? Well, I think the reason you said so was they were going to be a tell or a test to see whether or not ESG, which was the product that they came to market with under the, the Calvert brand, those ESG ETFs, if they gained traction, that would be a sign, given the, the challenges, uh, political landscape uh, and the institutional demand that was diminishing. If Morgan Stanley could pull it off and be a success story out of the gate, that would that, you know, that would be a, a come out of nowhere, you know, uh, unexpected player. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, so somebody who didn't get drafted uh, would all of a sudden be starting in the NFL uh, as the example. So I think it's incomplete because, yes, they just expanded their lineup. They're skating to – I'm going to mix metaphors here, but they're skating to where the puck at, actually is going and is likely to stay, which is income through fixed income and options-based equity strategies with the parametric equity premium income ETF, Pappy, uh, or Poppy, I guess, if, if uh, the way I think of the Boston Red Sox star, or and Eaton Vance's high-yield ETF, EVHY, active fixed income, income-based strategies that are different than what J.P. Morgan has had success in with Jeppy. I think Morgan Stanley is going to have more success with those products than we've seen so far with ESG, but I think it's still early. Um, so don't be so hard on yourself uh, with your predictions. But I would ask you, I don't know who my answer, or I'll say to you, I don't know who my answer is thus far for the ETF Asset Manager of the Year. Um, I, I, we obviously could go boring with Vanguard, who's had continued success in gaining market share, and iShares with the fixed income suite of products. But I'm not sure that I have a better answer right now. Uh, do you? No, I was actually going to try to pin you down. You beat me to it. Um <laughs> You know, J.P. Morgan is another issuer you can look at, and I know a product like Jeppy is sort of 2022-ish, but you look at the carry-through or the carry-over, that's had pretty impressive. Dimensional, they hit $100 billion in ETF assets. There are a lot of candidates yeah, there. Point. 
So yeah, I, I think we're going to have to look. But I, I will say, you know, I don't see somebody out there like uh, Capital Group, who we had last year, right? I, I think Capital Group, they just came on the scene immediately. I think you called this immediately, um, had billions of dollars in assets. They looked, they looked pretty clear uh, is, is an ETF issuer of the year last year. But, yeah, I don't know that we, we, we have that just yet. Um, Maybe when I come back, we'll have a better answer. I, I imagine <laughs> I'll come back in six or so weeks just in time to, to wrap up the year. That's right. Hey, uh, r- real quick, in addition to Morgan Stanley, um, there was another interesting batch of new launches from iShares last week. So they rolled out a suite of target date ETFs. These are called the iShares LifePath target date ETFs. And this is an initial lineup of, uh, of 10 products, expense ratios between 8 and 11 basis points, so very inexpensive. And they say that they're uh, targeting, uh, no pun intended, they're targeting the 57 million Americans that lack access to a 401k or employer-sponsored retirement plan. What, what, what did you think about these? Because asset allocation ETFs and, and target date ETFs don't really have a stellar history in the ETF space. Yeah, for the reasons I think that advisors historically have not, and you you are one and you can offer more real-world experience than I do, but it's harder to do one ETF that has multiple ETFs in it. It it seems like it's doing the work for you, and the advisor wants to show more ETFs uh, within the broader portfolio. I think by going direct to retail, this is that's the right way of going to it. And when you are still the industry leader, uh, market share leader in ETFs, you win by making the pie get bigger. And so the way to make the pie get bigger is to go to people who aren't using ETFs today and convince them that ETFs are the answer. So I think we're a decade plus after we saw a version of this, retail adoption and usage and interest in ETFs is considerably stronger than it was beforehand. I think these are going to be more successful in that they'll survive and they'll gather assets, but it's going to be about education. iShares needs, BlackRock needs to educate people that these products exist and they make it easy for them to save for retirement uh, for, I think, as little as 10 basis points. So institutional level pricing for retail investors with BlackRock's expertise, it should work. It just is going to require education to make it happen. Yeah, and I would say the timing for these does feel a lot better, especially if you think coming off the, the meme stock craze and everything we saw over the past few years, you may have some investors who uh, are managing their, their own retirement funds who go, you know what, uh, I just want to put it on autopilot, have somebody else take care of it. I can invest in these target date ETFs and be done with it. Uh, and especially younger investors who, as we know, this has been well documented, are much more likely to use ETFs versus another type of investment vehicle. Uh, again, I just think maybe the timing of these is more opportune for uh, for BlackRock. Todd, lastly here, I, I have to bring this up. You wrote an excellent piece last week on one of my favorite ETF topics. Not Not my favorite ETF structure, but one of my favorite ETF topics, and that's non-transparent ETFs. And as I think you know, I've been on record saying that I believe these things are dead in the water. But in your piece, you said, hey, look, these ETFs are still alive and kicking. Their obituary was written prematurely. And so I'd love to have you just briefly elaborate on why. Why why, why do you think these have a future? Well, first of all, they have a present, too. So (laughs) they are a small part of the marketplace, but they've been growing. Uh, and so in the piece, which I wrote on ETFtrends.com, it's called Semi-Transparent, ETFs are alive and well. I talk about how the asset base, uh, we've seen net inflows every quarter toward, towards these semi-transparent ETFs. That's the phrase I'm going to use. We've seen a fourfold increase in the assets uh, in over two years, again, off of a very small base. But there's still $7 billion dollars. Uh, in these products offered by Fidelity and by T. Rowe Price and American Century. These are firms that have had success running active management. They're now making those products and have made those products uh, and have three-year track records into the ETF space. I also like that it's been a gateway for firms like DoubleLine and First Manhattan to offer their first products. They might not be in the ETF marketplace. Now, whether they need to be or not, if they deliver value and they deliver alpha, then they're offering uh, something that investors want. 
I think we should be celebrating the fact that there's another way to offer ETFs. Uh, It's been written off. I'm sorry. Your predictions this year are not coming to, to fruition. But let's not call uh, call the cemetery for, for product. $7 billion. I, I guess I want a new tagline as I come in. Semi-transparent <laughs> ETFs have $7 billion. Don't write them off. Todd, that's a low blow, man, bringing up the predictions again. Uh, you know what? I'll, I'll actually give you another uh, tip of the cap because – we have a uh, a bet on gold ETFs as well, physical gold ETFs, which was another one of my 2023 ETF predictions. I think the the bet was that they would have more than $5 billion in inflows this year. And last I checked, they weren't even close. Uh, so I'll allow the, uh, the low blow because my predictions were <laughs> horrible this year. But just to be clear, you really think semi-transparent ETFs have a – have a future. Like, I, I get you're saying they have a presence. There's $7 billion in them now. But you, you think this structure, if we look back five years from now, 10 years from now, will ha- have grown in usage? I do. I think because now not all of them, not all of them are going to outperform and deliver value the same way that any other active ETF is going to do so. But I think for the fact that Tiro Price and, and Fidelity are perfect examples they have launched ETF versions of pre-existing mutual funds with a strong track record where they would be showing their cards too much and, and hurting the existing mutual fund shareholders. So as long as there's money in the Tiro Price Blue Chip Growth Mutual Fund or the Fidelity Blue Chip Growth Mutual Fund, because sorry, that's all I can come up with right now, then it makes sense that for those firms to offer an ETF version. I think the ETFs are going to gain market share relative to the mutual fund going forward. I think we're going to continue to see these products. I guess real quick, I was in a separate client event uh, that I did, an educational event with a different asset management partner that did not offer a semi-transparent ETF. This came up. I asked the room, when's the last time people looked at the holdings within their actively managed ETF. And nobody had looked at it yesterday. So if no one's looking at it yesterday, that doesn't necessarily mean we need to disclose the holdings yesterday. These ETFs are trading. They're functioning. They're going to be a smaller part of the active ETF universe, but they're going to play a role within the ETF ecosystem the same way that we have uh, semiconductor ETFs. Not everybody's going to buy them, but when they want them, they're there. No, I think all good points, um, and I agree with you regarding investors checking their holdings every day. I don't know that they necessarily do that, though. I'm a little surprised to hear that coming from the, the person who champions knowing what you own. <laughs> I'm kidding. but So I, I, people should check their holdings. They should. And they should make sure that what, they, what is being disclosed is available and is something they are comfortable with. I would love it that people went to ETFdatabase.com, which is one of our publications, to look inside the ETF on a daily basis. That would be a win for us, and that would certainly be a win for education. It's just not happening on a daily basis. It's not happening periodically, which is healthy, I guess, so that people don't spend too much time staring at, at the screen for the wrong reason. This might be a good future bet. We'll have to think about what the asset level is, but you know, we, we can pick an asset threshold over the next three or five years or whatever in place of bet in terms of what non-transparent ETF assets will be. But, uh, Todd, we are going to have to leave it there. Excellent stuff, as always. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, and I enjoy the next half hour of talking about Bitcoin and Bitcoin ETF prospects with somebody who is just as passionate about it as you are, my friend. I can't wait for it. Uh, thank you. That was Todd Rosenbluth, head of research at Vetify. Motley Fool Asset Management asks, do you like the low cost and convenience of passive funds, but want stock picks that have the potential to beat the market? The Motley Fool 100 Index ETF could be the solution you've been looking for. Motley Fool Asset Management took the 100 top-rated stock picks selected by the analysts at the Motley Fool LLC and put them all into one simple low-cost ETF. The ticker is TMFC. For more on this fund from Motley Fool Asset Management, visit fooletfs.com slash ETF Prime. That's FoolETFs.com slash ETF Prime.
According to the National Cancer Institute, cancer is expected to affect one in every two people in their lifetime, but a revolution in biology is driving significant advances in cancer diagnostics and treatment. The listed company opportunity set tied to oncology continues to expand significantly, but oncology remains a complex sector which requires expertise to navigate. Introducing the TEMA Oncology, C-A-N-C-E-T-F. Invest in the prevention and cure for cancer. Visit TEMAETFS.com or contact your financial advisor to learn more. Before investing, carefully consider the fund's investment objective, risks, charges, and expenses contained in the prospectus available at TEMAETFS.com. Read carefully before investing. Joined live and in person by James Safer, ETF research analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. And I mentioned this at the top. I am not sure there are five people walking the face of the earth who know more about crypto-related ETFs than James does. I thought I was all over this stuff. James has truly taken this to another level. I'm not sure when he sleeps, but uh, James, so great having you here in the studio, and welcome to Kansas City. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to get dive in here and talk about some uh, some crypto Bitcoin ETFs. And uh, what brings you into town? Yeah, so I'm actually here. I'm doing client visits, and I'm actually uh, speaking with um, a bunch of people. I'm giving a presentation to American Century Investments, who are some of the big, some one of the bigger issuers of uh, of ants ETFs, as we call them, uh, which you were just talking with Todd about. So I'm going to be talking to them about uh, what's going on in the overall fund landscape. I don't think I'll mention crypto or Bitcoin once unless I'm asked about it when I'm talking with them. But uh, uh, yeah, far ranging topics. Well, and I saw you uh, you did the proper thing last night, and you got some nice kansas city barbecue how was that it was very good i had i actually so my girlfriend lives in st louis so i I, nate knows this but i uh, getting here from st louis was not very easy it was either like a 30 minute layover or like a five hour layover so i ultimately just ended up renting a car and driving to st louis i had some great barbecue there too so i've i've had a lot of barbecue in the last week or so and they've but last night the brisket was better than what i had in in st louis but the ribs ironically enough in st louis were better than what i had here so but all very good very very good i won't get into a a, a KC barbecue competition with you here today. We'll, we'll talk. We'll, we'll stick to a crypto ETF. So, look, I was uh, looking back. You were actually on this podcast in uh, early July, which that was just after BlackRock filed for the iShares Bitcoin ETF. And then, of course, we saw everyone else jump in. That seems like ages ago, right? That's like five years in crypto time. Yeah, it feels like like I I was literally looking at some of the stuff like looking at the timelines of things rather recently, and I'm like that like it, if you had told me that was eight months ago, I'd be like oh yeah, I guess that was a, that was a long time ago, but it really wasn't that long ago. But so much has happened with the court case and all these different filers, these amendments. So much has been moving and happening. Uh, it, and and I feel like it, crypto Twitter it, like it's like one day is like seven days. Everything moves so quickly. Well, let's talk a little <laughs> bit about that because and look, we are going to cover everything with with spot Bitcoin and Ether. ETFs in a minute, but with, with Twitter or X or whatever you want to call it, it's amazing. I feel like every time uh, you tweet about crypto ETFs now, it's like wildfire. I, I see your tweets everywhere. Um, it, it's just, it's amazing. And I'd love to have you talk a little bit about that experience because it seems like your profile and your following has, has really grown. What has that been like? Yeah. So I, I, I so it's funny. There's, there's two things to say here. The first thing to say is like, I have a lot of people like, oh, the Bloomberg ETF peeps are like covering crypto now and like all this stuff and acting like I haven't been doing this since 2019. It's just no one knew who I was or <laughs> followed me. But um, Balchunas and I got got it right on the Bitcoin futures ETFs. And that's when I really started picking up a following. And I guess we've gotten a lot of calls correct over the last few years on this exact topic. Um, the crypto Twitter crowd is very, um, <laughs> very uh 
they have a lot of strong feelings there. And the anti-crypto crowd have a lot of very strong feelings. So um, there's a lot of interaction I have on Twitter. There's a lot of good sources you get um, from talking on Twitter. So it's been interesting. There's like a lot of like crypto publications will just take my tweet and write a story off of it. I'm like, this is absolutely insane. People are just writing stories off of it. But um, – yeah, I don't know. It's it's been nice. It's nice to get some of the recognition, but with that recognition comes a lot of uh, backlash from from other people as well. Yeah, it's a good point. I actually uh, tweeted out. I think it was over the weekend that I don't think there's a more passionate group of people on Twitter than the crypto crowd. It's amazing. I've seen it. Right. I mean, I've been covering uh, crypto ETFs for quite a while, and I just I can tweet about anything other than crypto ETFs, and it's crickets. Tweet about crypto ETFs, and again, it's like wildfire, and that's a reflection of the passion that this group has. And we can talk about what's driving that passion. Some people will say, well, it's all about number go up, right, to the moon. But when you start interacting with uh, individuals in the crypto space, there is a lot of knowledge here. There's a lot of knowledge around the history of money and government debt. And we can you know, get, uh, get into a whole slew of topics, but it truly is amazing. What I have thought about is once we finally have all these crypto ETFs, what are we going to tweet about? Are, are we going to tweet about <laughs> ETFs and bond ETFs and stuff like that? It's going to be boring. Yeah, no, it, it honestly is going to be boring. This has been extremely exciting, like in a very nerdy kind of way, like reading through these filings, trying to figure out what's going on. Um, and it's it's not like you and I both kind of have this semblance, and there's other people out there that have like this really good crossover understanding of like how ETFs work and why people invest in them and like what these documents look like. And there's like this it's, – it's kind of like TradFi and crypto overlap. I found this like really good niche where like I can kind of talk to TradFi people about crypto and I can talk to crypto people about TradFi. And there's a lot of people that just understand one and not the other. Uh, and this ETF overlap is obviously just like perfect for like what my understanding and knowledge and experience has been. I also used to cover closed-end funds uh, back in the day at, at Bloomberg. So like GBTC fell squarely in that – squarely in my lap. Like if you had a bunch of like concentric over overlapping circles, GBTC kind of fell right into my lap uh, a few years ago. So that's where all this really started for me is, is trying to explain to our clients who were doing that GBTC trade with the premiums or the discounts, asking me questions and me just like really diving in and doing a deep dive. And now here we are talking about ETFs. It's a good point with you sort of serving as a bridge because, and I know you feel the same way, we always talk about how a spot Bitcoin ETF or spot crypto ETFs in general are sort of a bridge between crypto and traditional finance. And on Twitter, you're so, sort of serving that role as well, right? I mean, you're you're that bridge. You're helping that that not you know that knowledge gap that people have between ETFs and TradFi, but also uh, bringing the crypto element as well. Yeah, I get I get a lot of flack from the crypto crowd for being literally called a suit at different times, and <laughs> people saying don't trust this guy. He works for a, tra- a regular finance company, and people some people consider Bloomberg to be mainstream media. So I get a lot of flack for that stuff. But I mean, my experience is for the most part, even within Bloomberg, there's a lot of people that really do understand this stuff. So it's it's not all that complicated, but it's it's, it's it's certainly fun. We'll move on from the topic of uh, Twitter here in a moment, but I, I have to ask you, I know you were on Bloomberg's ETF IQ last week covering this topic, but I'm really curious to hear what you thought about this tweet from Cointelegraph last Monday. And I did cover this on the podcast last week with uh, Vetify's Tom Lydon, and I'm happy to give you my take if you didn't hear it. But what was your initial reaction to that Coin Telegraph tweet, did you think there was any chance at all that that it was real that the iShares Bitcoin ETF had in fact been a- approved by the uh, SEC? Yeah, so I mean, part of the thing is like I've CoinDesk is a very good source, which is obviously not Coin Telegraph, and these crypto trade publications have beaten us in knowing some stuff about the ETF world. So like, it wouldn't have been completely insane to get scooped by a crypto publication like Coin Telegraph. That said, it just didn't seem right. But also, like, we just had the courts not the, – the SEC not file for uh, an en banc uh, appeal essentially in their GBTC case. So the SEC didn't do that. So, like, people were thinking maybe a lot of things could happen. It just didn't – the timing didn't seem right to me. It was way too quick. I immediately – somebody – so I was basically literally pouring coffee when I was, like, scrolling through Twitter and I saw that. And I was like, what is this? And right after I saw it, Baltunas texted me and said, you see this with a link to Twitter. And I literally ran to my desk and was like, I need to figure out if this is real. So I I was being tagged. Everyone was like, Jay Safe, is this real? Like all these people, I guess the crypto Twitter people know that like I cover this stuff. And I replied to like two or three people. I was like, I don't think so. 
but I didn't want to like go out publicly and say this is definitely false. And then I, I spent 10 minutes like just look. I was like, there's nothing here. This is fake. The only way this could be real is if somebody at iShares, the SEC leaked that they're approving it. And But also part of it was like our view, which we can get into, is that we I think it's going to be a common clock. I think there's going to be multiple that launch at once, which was like just fishy to me. The timing didn't make sense. But like the fact that we've been scooped by them a bunch of times before on certain things was like I have to take this a little bit seriously. But um, yeah, it's, it's just it's not a good look. You can look at the conversation happening internally with the what crypto uh, with with what Coin Telegraph put out. Ironically enough, I was reading through it and like you can see everything and like my tweet is in there and then Eric's tweets are in there questioning whether it's real. Um, and like they were talking internally about what we were tweeting, which is funny, like just live throwing their our stuff in there. But um, yeah, that's a bad mistake. It's a bad look. Like they never should have tweeted that. And then like my favorite part of that whole thing was like they tweeted it out. I don't know if you talked about this last week. And then like one of the people was like, oh, the price is moving. Maybe it is real. Like <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> yeah, like you guys just tweeted it out with 1.9 million followers. If it's actually happening, like obviously you're the one moving the market. But, but you uh, you called it out pretty quick though on Twitter, didn't you? Say something along the lines of like, hey, this is likely false. Fa- I literally called it fake, fake news. Yeah. Fake news. It was 15 minutes after it was posted exactly, uh, and I. Th- think i was the first person other than some random people saying this is probably can this be real but i i think i was the first person to call it out as fake news immediately because part of the reason eric was questioning it was because similar thing happened the week prior with some some news with like reuters coming out and saying the sec wasn't going to appeal and like we saw headlines on the terminal but like really what happened is like the bloomberg terminal like aggregates a bunch of headlines and wires from different sources so like it just got like copied and pasted across multiple wires and it showed up like from reuters on the bloomberg terminal and it was like what is this headline um so eric saw that on the bloomberg terminal was like i don't even know if this is real now i'm second guessing my thoughts that initially it was fake but ultimately it came back and fake news (laughs) i was uh i think i was just shocked at how many large accounts large media accounts were retweeting the headline basically treating it as if it was real. And I, I blogged about this a little bit last week, so I'll give you my... I, saw my, the, okay, I, did, yeah. see, I did see a bit of the blog. So, yeah, so, yeah. so very simply, I mean, what had me skeptical was, one, if, the, if there was a leak, the SEC doesn't use the term approve, right? The SEC doesn't approve anything. They allow things to come to market. I know that's a minor nuance, but that caught my attention right away. Um, the SEC had obviously just delayed a decision on the iShares Bitcoin ETF at the end of September. And so why would they turn around and allow the ETF three weeks later? That had my attention to what you were saying earlier. Um, the prevailing thought in the in the marketplace is that the SEC is going to batch approve these things, let them all launch at once. So the fact that only the iShares, yes. you know, th- that caught my attention. And then I think lastly, it, again, just the the optics, given that the SEC didn't appeal the grayscale ruling a week ago, or it would have been on that Friday, and then turn around on Monday and say, yep, now we're approving the iShares Bitcoin ETF, but you know, not grayscales or any others. That just had my attention as well. But I, to your point, you never know. And you know, there's a lot of chatter in, in the crypto space. And, and look, and we can get into this. Maybe it's a good segue here. There's a lot of chatter right now just around the iShares Bitcoin ETF because they've now been listed in the DT, DTCC, uh, you know, apparently or, or perhaps seeding the ETF soon. So <laughs> maybe Coin Telegraph was just a little bit uh, early. I, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I mean, Beltunas has this theory that maybe like somebody at iShares had like told somebody else that yeah, it looks like we're getting approved, and then like it just kind of trickled up, and then ultimately ended up being tweeted, even though there is no way to prove it. But I mean, y- you can look at all the stuff that has happened. Look, that's a red herring document that says they're seeding in October. Like that, somebody could have just put that in there in case they do start seeding in October. They could easily have to file another amendment and then change the date to be November or December or whatever. Um, and then the so yeah, but they, the other people were like, "Oh my God, it already has a QSIP." Look, iShares has had a QSIP since since July of this year, um, but like. There's no like set timing like, oh, they filed their they have they're listed with the DTCC. That means they're going to list in three days. They could not list for a long time. Like I've seen ETFs to go up there and they ultimately don't end up listing for one reason or another. And at the end of the day, we need that 19 before approval order from the SEC before this launches. So obviously this is not there's no way in way in, in there's no world in which like all these moves by BlackRock that has 
thrown Twitter into a storm. I was I was driving from St. Louis to Kansas City while this was blowing up in Twitter yesterday morning. Um, but there's no way in, in there's no world where this is like a negative thing. Like the only thing it could be is neutral at worst and positive at best. Like the S- BlackRock's not going through all this process, taking all these steps if they're like expecting get, to get denied in the next couple months. They're they're getting all of their ducks in a row and and ready getting ready to launch. I agree with all that. There's no question this is highly positive towards approval. And again, I put this out on Twitter last night as well, but I'd love your take. So the SEC, and we can get into the deadlines on some of the other ETFs as well, but the SEC does not have to make a final decision on the ARC 21 shares Bitcoin ETF until January 10th, I believe. And so the question would be, why why would they allow, say, the iShares Bitcoin ETF or any of these other ETFs to come to market prior to that if they don't have to, after we've waited you know, what, 10 and, 10 and a half years now since the Winkle Vi filed for their Bitcoin ETF in July of, I believe, 2013. So I, I don't know if you have a take on that. I think you're, you're sort of in agreement with me. And it's not that it won't launch. Look, it's very possible. We don't know. This whole saga has been, um, you know, it's had all kinds of twists and turns, right? So I, I guess my question is, why would the SEC allow these to come to market before January 10th if they don't have to? So I have two thoughts there. One, um, the way these things get denied and these processes go, there's all these these four dates. And after certain dates, they have to allow for comment periods. So they could be looking for a time period where the most people are like already out of that comment period and trying to get these things approved. Because like you said, and we've been saying, they're probably going to do a batch approval or a common clock. Um, the other thing is like I don't think that dates really matter aside from January 10th. Uh, and the SEC is going to approve them all at once. And before January 10th, if we had to pick a reason why they would go before January 10th, it's we don't know what the heck is going on with Grayscale, right? All we know is the SEC didn't file for an en banc. They decided not to appeal in that regard. Theoretically, they could appeal to the Supreme Court of the United States. Uh, the Supreme Court odds of like actually taking that appeal are near zero, in my opinion. It's just not something they would take up. And even if they did, the SEC is going to lose to the, <laughs> based on the current make of the Supreme Court. So that's not happening. Um, so what we're assuming now is as the mandate came down, which I assume we're going to get into, they basically effectuated the opinion from August. Crypto Twitter was like of this opinion that there was, was going to be some grand like approval letter that said it was going to happen. And Elliot Stein, one of my colleagues, tweeted out like an example. This is what one of these mandates looked like. It's like two sentences that says, like, this is official. Uh, So I was trying to be early and out saying that, look, this might not happen Friday. It could happen Monday. And also, it's not going to mean anything. Um, So basically, we don't know exactly what's happening because the courts aren't going to tell the SEC or Grayscale these are the next steps. So what we're assuming happening is right now the SEC and Grayscale are in talks trying to figure out, like, what happens next. We're in uncharted territory of what this type – nothing has happened like this in the past, right? So – our assumption, Elliot Stein, my colleague, believes that they're going to try to make Gray, they're going to make Grayscale completely refile, completely start that 19 before process over. Obviously, Grayscale is not going to want to do that, and if they do, they're going to want assurances that if we do that, we're going to get approved with everyone else or something like that or some sort of deadline. But my view is like that the court order was vacated. Now there's an open there's an open issue, right? That the, 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 it hasn't been settled because what settled it is now gone. So in my mind, like the SEC needs to do something in some sort of time period, whether it's 45 days from not filing the unbank, 60, 90 days, or what have you. So basically, what happens with Grayscale is what could push this into 2023 in our eyes. But a lot of people are asking Eric and I, like, what are odds now after all this stuff? And like. I went. We went to ninety percent by January tenth of twenty twenty four. Like we cannot go any higher because any that the the idea that Gary Gensler or somebody at the SEC could try to like completely cut the head off of this thing, go crazy, and not like you can't. You don't know what Gary's going to do. He's done a lot of things that don't make a lot of sense. So him being on the table and at the head of the SEC is is always possible possibility that something else could happen. It's a great point regarding this whole situation with Grayscale. I think clearly they're a, a linchpin in terms of timing here because to what you were saying, Grayscale, and there, you may remember they had a comment letter, I think it was back at the beginning of September. They clearly view this as a live filing. Yes, and they of do. Of course, they had the, the S3 filing last week. They view this as a live filing. And so if that order... The, the disapproval order was vacated, you can mount an argument that the SEC has exceeded their clock 
and this product should be allowed to, to list. You, there's a legal argument to be made that by that being vacated and by the clock being dead, that this is like de facto approved exactly. by the SEC. Now, no shot the SEC would allow that to happen. Like we just end up in court again, probably, I'm, I'm guessing. Look, I'm not a lawyer. I do. We do talk to a lot of lawyers who know this stuff better than I do. But yeah, that's 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 a that's a prevailing legal argument that I'm sure Grayscale is trying to use in talking with the SEC. Like, look, we can push this this envelope here. We could do this. So there's a bit of a negotiation going on here. And um, that may be why. Why there is the potential that these products could launch before January 10th, right? Because if Grayscale is really pushing the envelope here and saying, hey, this filing should be approved, we should be able to come to market. And the SEC, we, we know or we think they want to batch all of these up at, at, at once. Maybe that's why you see it, somebody like BlackRock getting all of their ducks in a row to be able to to launch. I guess we'll see. Um, l- let me ask you this. I know when we chatted back in early July, and this was right after – iShares had filed their uh, amended 19B4. The big talking point was around Coinbase and surveilling, surveillance sharing agreements. Does that even matter anymore? Like, is that even part of the SEC's decision-making process here? Do, do you think that matters, or is, is that a moot point? Look, so I, I think it matters just in the sense that it's a good look, especially from Gary Gensler. He can point to it and say, I got them to come in and we're going to police the wild, wild west of crypto because now we have the surveillance sharing of Coinbase. I'm assuming they'll eventually shortly have one with Gemini too. Um, but to be to be honest, anybody who filed with Nicey, Bitwise, uh, Hashdex, and Grayscale, I believe are the only ones, they have no language about the Coinbase surveillance sharing agreement. That said – Basically, the court said it shouldn't be needed. You can't approve Bitcoin futures ETFs and not approve spot. That said, it, it can only help, right? Like it's not like it's going to – getting the Coinbase surveillance sharing agreement is a detriment to anything. Um, so I think the SEC will try to use that and spin it as a win, specifically Gary, um, for political purposes. Um, but it's pretty evident that the courts don't care whether or not there's a surveillance sharing agreement. But like I said – Gary can turn it around and say, no, we wanted this surveillance sharing agreement, and that's why we're approving, not necessarily just because of what the court said. Yeah, and they get a win perception-wise in doing so. Is there anything else that you think needs to be addressed in any of these filings, or is it just a matter of time at this point that the SEC simply needs to, to bless these filings? Yeah, so there's, there's, two, there's two parallel processes that need to happen before any of these ETFs get approved. The first process is the one we've been talking about for literally years, <laughs> which is the 19 before approval process with all those dates and deadlines. The other process is basically getting the the S1s or in Grayscale case, Grayscale's case, the, the S3s approved uh, by a different division. So the 19 befores are through the division of trading and markets. The S1s, S3s go through uh, division of corporate finance and the division of investment management might be involved in some way too. I'm not really sure. But essentially, those S1s, S3s, those are the prospectuses. Those are the offering documents for the shares of these funds, these trusts. And they need to be approved by the Division of Corporate Finance. So that's what we're seeing with all these amendments, these changes, these added risk disclosures, these more details about the AP agreements, more details about custody. These are concerns that they have, that they want all of these S1-type documents to be clear and explaining risks, adding disclosures, adding clarifications. So that conversation is happening. So basically, you need both Division of Trading Markets to sign off on the 19B4s and you need this division of Corp Fin to sign off on the S1s and S3s. Now, what are the next steps? We don't know. It's possible that, we, like you said, we've seen these amendments from iShares and Fidelity and these different players, ARK and, Van, Arc and uh, 21 shares. Um, maybe the SEC is going to come back and say they still have more things they want done, more things they want added. There's no way to know. But at the end of the day, it's these two processes. And we have these ETFs in Canada and Europe and all over the world and, like, Everyone else has figured out a way to do this. We have Bitcoin futures ETFs. The disclosures can't be all that different. Um, so it's just a matter of time between these lawyers at the issuers and the lawyers at the SEC getting comfortable with what's going on in the S3s and S1s. And I just, as we've said many times before, I think it's going to be very hard for the SEC Division of Trading and Markets to deny these ETFs because the courts have basically said any reason you've given in the past is not viable anymore. So I know listeners probably want me to, uh, to to pin you down on this. So I just want to clarify. So it sounds like you still believe, and, and obviously your colleague Eric Balchunas, that there's a 90% chance that these are approved by January 10th and that when these are 
uh, ultimately approved. The thought is that these will be batched up and everybody can launch at the same time. I mean, is that where you're at right now? Uh, yeah. Just, just high level? Yeah. So we're also at 75% by the end of 2023. But once we, if we get some clarification that the grayscale decision doesn't have to happen until 2024 or they can delay it some way or we get more information on that, that basically the odds of 2023 are going to have to go way down. Uh, so we haven't changed those odds. We just moved up the Gen 10 to 90%, which, like I said, we can't go any higher. If we're wrong, this is all just qualitative. It's not quantitative in any way. But like we just there's too much writing on the wall. And we wanted to be early. We were early and we got a lot of flack for some of our talk. And now most people are coming into our camp. You were in our camp as well. Um, so yeah, that's that's our stance. Uh, we I will have to eat a lot of crow uh, if we're wrong. Um, people were like, oh, if it happens after January, you were still wrong. Like for the most part, people know that we've been accurate and we've been Honestly, this has been – we've been very, very accurate with our calls and what's going on with the crypto ETF space. We were right in Ethereum futures ETFs. We were right in Bitcoin futures ETFs. We were right in that all these things were going to get denied. We were right that Grayscale was going to win in court despite – that was probably the biggest pushback I got on any calls that we made. We were making a call that Grayscale had a legitimate shot to win in court before the oral arguments. And I can't tell you how many people, including Bloomberg clients, told me that this was a frivolous lawsuit and it was never going to go through uh, and all this other stuff. So – um, if we get one wrong, I guess it won't it won't be the end of the world. But I'd much prefer to to get this right. Well, to your point, you have an excellent track record, and that goes back years, goes back to well before the uh, the Bitcoin futures ETFs launched. Um, okay, so one of the things that you uh, you tweeted out this was a couple of weeks ago. You do a great job of keeping an inventory of all of the filings, both spot Bitcoin ETFs. You have one for uh, spot Ether ETFs. So right now, if I look at your table. There are 11 issuers that have filed, not including Grayscale. And I just real quick want to go through these. So we have ARC21 shares, iShares, Bitwise, VanEck, WisdomTree, Invesco Galaxy, Wise, which is uh, the Fidelity ETF, Valkyrie, GlobalX, Hashdex, and then Franklin Templeton. And my, my question for you is this. We don't have to get all into the competitive landscape once these things are on the market. We did that before. I'd encourage people to go, go back and listen to our podcast in July. But I, I am curious to hear where you think fees may come in on these. And I, I've said I could very easily see someone like iShares just going for the jugular and charging, say, 25 basis points and just trying to you know, very quickly become the market leader. A- any thoughts on that? I mean, I think that's going to be clearly key to the competition here. I think we both agree that there's going to be a lot of assets that go into these products overall. I think we think the demand's going to be there. Correct me if I'm wrong. So, so then the question is, okay, where, where do the assets flow? And we know historically in the ETF space, the cheapest products from the largest issuers, for better or worse, tend to vacuum up the, the assets. So, so maybe talk a little bit about that dynamic and where you think fees may come in at. Yeah, I love this. The, my quote, my favorite quote from Matt Hogan is that ETFs, the ETF industry, tends to be a winner-take-most rather than winner-take-all. So obviously, I think the cheapest product is most likely going to get the most assets. That's just the way it's going to work, especially if it's from a big issuer like BlackRock is obviously the gorilla in the room, but you also like you, you mentioned a couple big names: Fidelity, Invesco, Franklin Templeton. There's no slouch in the asset management space. Um, you name it. Uh, but there's other issuers out there that Van Eck has been trying to do this for a very long time. They've been very involved in the crypto space. Um, so it'll be interesting. I don't know where fees are going to go. My guess would be somewhere closer to the 50 basis point mark. But I, you're right. I could see somebody just coming in and taking making this a loss leader product because the the cost of using custodians in the Bitcoin space is way higher than it is for an equity, right? Mm-hmm. I, we don't know exactly what these costs look like. And there's also other, um, there's other third-party administrators that come into play here. But for the most part, custodying equity assets is very, very, very cheap and commoditized by all the big banks, the BNY Mellons, the State Streets. Um, It's not completely commoditized in the Bitcoin space. So you have to know that the issuers, yes, they're taking in whatever they're taking in their fee. They're going to have to pay it out in these other areas. Um, So I wouldn't be – honestly, I wouldn't be shocked if you're right, if iShares just comes in for the juggler and drops a 25 basis point thing. And that will be hard for a lot of issuers to take. I mean if you look at Grayscale, they charge 2%. 2%, So I'm sure they're thinking about they're going to have to drop to 50 basis points or something along those lines is my guess. That's That would be my demarcation line I would think. Um, But futures ETFs, we have them at 70-ish basis points. So they're they're pretty high. We have some – Bitto, the big one is 95 basis points I believe. Um, so they're they're pretty expensive. So anything that we get out of these spot Bitcoin ETFs, it'll be good for pretty much everyone. It'll be very good for investors who want this in their traditional brokerage accounts. These ETFs are probably going to be way cheaper than anything else you have access to, particularly using 
plenty of crypto exchanges that charge rather high transaction fees, and you have no idea what the bid-ask spread is. Yeah, my, my thought on this is that you mentioned the term loss leader. I think that's exactly how somebody like iShares would approach this and say, okay, maybe we will lose money on this product for a period of time. Assets will grow. Ultimately, it will become somewhat profitable. But they can clear out a lot of the competition that doesn't have the wherewithal to, to run a loss leader product. I, I really think it's that simple because I do think that this isn't anything enlightening. A Bitcoin ETF is a Bitcoin ETF is a Bitcoin ETF. In other words, what's the difference? They, they all own Bitcoin. I'm not saying there's some, some minor nuances underneath the hood, but in general, they're all going to own spot Bitcoin. So what does that mean? It, well, it's going to come down to fees and obviously liquidity. So we know whoever you know is able to, to, to really become the liquidity leader, like we've seen with SPY on the equity side of ETFs, that, that's a game changer. But ultimately, fees are really important there. Yeah, I, I also think they're... There's also going to be this – there's going to be a huge marketing push, which we've talked about a lot. There's going to be a lot of marketing around Bitcoin ETFs, I think. Uh, but there's also going to be other ways to differentiate. Like it's winner take most, right? One of these guys is going to take a lot. But you have the Bitwise and the Valkyries of the world and Van Eck who's been doing this a long time and Vesco who's partnered with Galaxy who all bring their own clients in the crypto space dealing with institutional firms. So they can kind of bring their own assets. Maybe they won't be the one with a billion dollars. But if they get a $100 million in some of these ETFs, that will be more than profitable for pretty much most all, all these issuers, depending on where the fees are. Um, so it, the other thing I would say is like other ways they can differentiate is there are ETFs in Europe that have a 0% expense ratio, and that's because they lend out the underlying crypto, and then they basically charge the fee out of that earned revenue from lending it out, and then some of them give dividends on top of that. Good so point. like you, you'll see things where like iShares is going to be like, I'm going to hold our stuff in cold storage. No one's going to be able to touch it. It's never going to be seen by anyone. Barely any of it will be in a hot wallet. And then you'll see other people coming out and be like, look, we're going to lend out your Bitcoin and earn you a 6% yield and we're going to do it securely and all these things and obviously there's going to be people in crypto like ripping their hair out hearing about this but there's there's going to be all these different ways some of the people are going to promise to use different custodians we've already seen a lot of custodians in the bitcoin space that people don't trust so people are going to say we're using gemini we're using coinbase um somebody if they were using prime trust would be in a lot of trouble right now right so people are going to point out they're probably going to use bitgo there's a lot of different custodians in the space people will lean on that um so i think it's going to be pretty vibrant and i do think it's going to be winner take most but i do think there's going to be a handful of other products out there um and we'll see who they partner with if they partner with other issuers and, and things like that. All right. We only have about five minutes left here. I knew this was going to happen. I, I should have reserved a whole hour for us because you and I <laughs> could, could go for like three hours talking about this. But I, I want to quickly pivot here and talk about Ether ETF. So let's just think rapid fire on these. Maybe give me you know 30, 60 seconds on each of these questions. And obviously, we had the debut of Ether Futures ETFs a few weeks ago, which I would say was extremely underwhelming. Now, I wasn't necessarily surprised by that. I, I don't think you were either. But I, th I think we both would say there was even less demand than, than the low expectations that we had. Any quick thoughts on Ether futures ETFs? Yeah, so I agree 100%. Less demand than I even thought. I was I was way under Balchunas's thinking because he thought all these companies would put a lot of money behind it and, and trying to get assets into these funds, uh, and it was even way lower than what I was thinking. So uh, that that was a little surprising. I think there's a few things here. One, uh, the market isn't what it was in October of 21. That was a raging bull market. Um, two, people I don't I think a lot of people in TradFi don't really like they look at Bitcoin and Ethereum and it's just crypto in in, in one essence. Um, people don't like futures ETFs for the most part. We we know Bitto's trailing spot by a decent amount. Um, and also, I wonder how much of the batch approval impacted what happened. If you look at, um, if you look at Bitto, is like more volume begets volume. So like it was just constantly like feeding on itself. And here we had like a bunch of different ETFs listed on the same day, so there was no like snowball effect. So I wonder if the how much that'll impact spot Bitcoin. But um, yeah, that's my futures take. It's interesting if you exclude BTF, which is the Valkyrie Bitcoin and Ether Strategy ETF, which that already had assets. I show a total of only about 18 million into the other six Ether futures related ETFs overall, which 18 million after a few weeks. And in my my take, and this gets into my next question, these will all be obsolete anyway once we get approval of a spot Ether ETF. So let's just go there. I mean, I feel like a spot Ether ETF is only a matter of time, right? Because once spot Bitcoin ETFs are approved, and given that the SEC has allowed CME traded Ether Futures ETFs, which we just talked about. You combine that with Grayscale's court victory, spot Ether ETFs should be right around the corner, right? 
Yeah, I have nothing to add there. I think they're going to happen. The first deadline, the ultimate deadline for some of those that have been filed is May of 2024. So I think that there's a good chance. Now, obviously, there's different things the SEC can try to do. But my view is ultimately that the SEC and Gary Gensler have kind of put uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum separate in a way because there's it, it would just be way too hard to fight over those digital assets in court and they can focus on everything else. Um, so I'm with you. I think I think we see Ethereum futures, Ethereum futures. I think we see spot Ethereum um, by the end of May in 2024. Um, I haven't put a percentage on that. We have to. I'm focused on the Bitcoin stuff. But assuming we do get a spot Bitcoin ETF and we are right about that, I think the SEC will be very hard pressed to find a way to deny spot Ethereum ETFs, like you said. And then from there, really, there would be nothing stopping a combined spot Bitcoin and Ether ETF as well, right? Yeah. Okay. Agreed. Yep. Um, all right. Before I let you go, any thoughts on blockchain ETFs or crypto equity ETFs? Do you feel like these will just be uh, sort of like the gold miner ETFs, the physical gold ETFs longer term, right? Where once a spot Bitcoin ETF is approved, that's how people will view these crypto uh, equity ETFs. It's interesting because if you look at the ETF performance leaderboard this year, those crypto related ETFs, they're all up at the, at the top, but they haven't really seen inflows. And so I'm just wondering... Th- you know, what's the future for, for those products? Yeah, there's a lot of them out there. I don't know how many. I want. To, there's over 10. I don't, know the, I don't know the exact number. I think some of them are going to have to close, but some of them have significant assets and people are going to be stuck in there with cap gains. And it was a way to get exposure to blockchain and crypto without buying the actual underlying asset. I think there are advisors that are just going to be more comfortable if they if crypto takes off again. They don't maybe don't want to hold the underlying asset. They don't want to worry about it. So I think there will be a space for it. I mean, there's still a, there's a vibrant space for gold miner ETFs. If you look at what happened, Bitcoin miners tend to be like gold miners in the sense that they're like leverage plays on like the underlying assets. So I think we could see something very similar with some of these uh, Bitcoin equity or crypto equity ETFs. But, um, yeah, I think some of them are like likely going to have to close. Well, James, this has been so much fun. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. I'm so glad we could do this uh, in person. How long are you in town for? I'm here through uh, the middle, most of the day tomorrow. Yeah. Okay. Well, enjoy the rest of your trip, and thank you for joining me this week. Thanks, Nate. This was great. That was James Safert, ETF Research Analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. Interested in how you can generate more income for your clients? Join Vetify and other industry-leading experts on Friday, October 27th for their Income Strategy Symposium. This virtual event is free of charge and offers the opportunity to earn CE credits. Register now at etftrends.com slash income strategy symposium. Next week, I'll be joined by Jeff Benjamin, who's wealth management editor at etf.com. This should be interesting. We are going to go in-depth on how the media approaches covering ETFs. Jeff's been doing this a long time, previously covered ETFs at Investment News, one of the best in the business. So he'll give us an inside look at ETFs in the media. Until then, have a great week, everyone.